Most of you already know and are aware that I have been pursuing further seminary education. And that that seminary education is meant to be practical and played out on a church-wide basis. They, in fact, told us very clearly from the very beginning that their plan is not to compete with our work as ministers, that their plan is not to get in the way of what we do in our preaching and in our, our pastoring, but that they would supplement it and help us along the way and make us better at that. Well, the semester that I am in right now is focused on the doctrine of the Trinity. The general focus of the class is on theology in general and how it informs expository preaching. But in our writing assignments and in our research assignments, they decided to go easy on us and assign us research in the area of the doctrine of the Trinity. So I've been doing a lot of reading on the Trinity. And what I want us to do over the next several weeks leading up to Easter Sunday is a part of this study. A summary of the doctrine of the Trinity could go something like this, although if you read the, all the works that have been written on the Trinity, it probably should be much, much longer than this. But for our purposes today, a summary of the doctrine could go something like this. There is one God consisting of three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three persons are co-equal, co-eternal, and of one substance. So there are not three gods, but one God. And there is no hierarchy in God, but all are of the same substance. They are of the same will and mind and mission. Though there is an order in their relationship and in their behavior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one. They are of one mind. This doctrine is at the heart of the Christian faith, but I dare say that most of us would have a hard time articulating it and the more we tried, the more confused we would become. In fact, I know that's the case because I've read some pretty thick books on the Trinity. And the thicker they are, the more confusing they are. Because the great scholars have a hard time articulating the doctrine of the Trinity. Why do you think that is? Because we're trying to use finite human language to describe something that is indescribable. And so we do our best, and we try, and we make an effort, though we do so imperfectly. But understanding that God is one, three persons in one God, is a crucial doctrine to the Christian faith. It is vital to knowing God. It is a relevant doctrine in all aspects of life. So if we would understand salvation if we would understand the ministry of the church, if we would understand sanctification, if we would understand the basic Christian life, all of that is connected somehow to an understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I do not intend for us to do a full series on the doctrine of the Trinity itself. I suspect we'd all be more confused if I tried to do that. 
and it would be a long series, and it would be way too much to try to cover. But I did get input recently from our Wednesday night crowd in the form of a survey that has helped me to narrow the focus a little bit. And so what I want us to do over the next several weeks is to begin by looking simply at what Jesus has to say about himself and about his relationship to the Father. And then I want us to spend, beginning next week, Lord willing, a couple of weeks looking at what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, and why it matters. There are many different texts we could look at to do all of this, but since we have been in the last several weeks in the Gospel of John, I think we'll stay put. And we'll come back to some passages that are already familiar to us. So, John is one of the key books in Scripture that teaches us about the Trinity. So this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we really could spend our time in the whole chapter looking at what Jesus has to say about himself, but... We're going to limit ourselves today to verses 17 through 24. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about who he is and why it really matters. That's the key for us. We can spend all this time talking about who Jesus is, about who the Spirit is. We can talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, and we could never end up coming to a question of why it matters. And if we don't answer that question that all we have done is an academic exercise. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because your relationship to Jesus is the most important aspect of your life. There is no greater or more important question that you could ask than this. Where do you stand with Jesus? There is no neutral ground here. Either you are following Jesus as your Lord, or are you, you are rejecting him entirely. There is no middle ground. John's whole purpose in writing this gospel is to prove to us and to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. That is his title. And it is based on the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. And it means the anointed one, the one who is promised from God to come and save his people from their sin. And that tells us what we need to know. Why is our relationship with Jesus so important? Because it is through Jesus that we are reconciled to God and saved from our sin. And without him... We are still lost. And John writes so that we will believe this about Jesus. And so that by believing, we will have eternal life in him alone. And so throughout the Gospel of John, there are these portraits that highlight the works and the words of Jesus. And they give us irrefutable, compelling evidence that Jesus is no mere man. That he is God in human flesh. Now in chapter 5, in verses 1 through 16, we have an account of Jesus 
performing one of those works. We often call them miracles. John calls them signs because they were meant to reveal something about him. Jesus heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. And this supernatural healing serves as the event that got a conversation started with the religious hypocrites about who Jesus is, and that is what we find in the rest of chapter 5. And I think his healing of this man on the Sabbath day, and I think this conversation is why he did things the way he did. I think this is why he healed the man, intentionally to draw the criticism of the religious leaders so that he could expose their hypocrisy and then so he could teach an important truth about himself. So Jesus heals this paralyzed man on the Sabbath day, and he quickly receives the rebukes and the criticisms of the religious leaders. All of that takes place in verses 1 through 16. Now at this point, when the people come and start asking him the questions, Jesus could have gone into an explanation about the Sabbath day. And he did on some occasions. He could have talked about the true meaning of the Sabbath based on Old Testament law. He could have explained to the religious leaders how their traditions were actually going against the intention of the law as God had given it. He could have pointed out their error in understanding the whole purpose of the Sabbath day. And he could have pointed out how wrong they were to criticize him for this behavior. But he doesn't do that. Instead, here, Jesus launches into a discourse that covers the rest of chapter 5. And what he is talking about is all about who he is and why he has the right to do what he does. So rather than try to de-escalate the situation, Jesus actually intensifies it. He actually turns the heat up on himself. He actually makes it worse by saying some incredibly bold things, unbelievably bold things to the religious leaders about who he is, where he has come from, and what he is here to do. As I said, we're not going to cover the whole chapter today. We're just going to look at verses 17 through 24. So if you'll follow along as I read, just for the sake of getting a running start, I'm going to back up to verse 16, and we'll read through verse 24. After healing this man, verse 16, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, 
but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In this passage, Jesus makes an astounding and daring claim. He claims to be equal with God the Father. And he does this in five specific ways. He claims to be equal with the Father in his nature, in his works, in his power, in his authority, and in his honor. And that is no small claim that Jesus makes here. And everyone who heard it knew exactly what he was saying. And because he says all of this, Jesus makes unmistakably clear that there can be no middle ground in our response to him. There is no room to claim that Jesus was just a good teacher or a good moral example or a great martyr of the past. There simply is no room. Either he is who he says he is, and thus he is worthy of our worship, or else he is an imposter and a deceiver who is worthy to be rejected and shunned. There can be no third way. These claims are important. These claims are bold. And these claims are vital to our understanding of who Jesus is, and they are meant to lead us to the only proper response, repentance and faith and worship. So who is Jesus? Where do we stand with him? Why does it matter? Jesus himself answers these questions. First of all, then, I want us to notice that Jesus is equal with the Father in his nature. He is equal with the Father in his nature. In verse 17, Jesus gives his initial response to the Jewish religious leaders when they criticize him for healing this man on the Sabbath day. And he throws the gauntlet down just like this. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. I love that. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, oops. He doesn't say, you just don't understand something. No, my father works until now, and I work, period. And notice he says, my father. He doesn't say, your father. He doesn't say, our father. Is God not also our father if we are in Christ? Yes, but Jesus isn't talking about that level of relationship right here. He's talking about something greater. He's talking about a closer relationship. He was talking about a likeness such as no man would claim with God. He is talking about equality. Calling God his Father in this way makes Jesus out to be the Son of God. And it is a way of describing his nature and his character. For example, on a lesser scale, 
We get a simpler sense of this when we look at Scripture and we find other descriptions of people as the son of something else. For instance, if one is called a son of Belial, we know that in that case the description means that this is one who is demonstrating the same characteristics, the same nature as Satan. Or we have in the Gospels James and John who were called the sons of thunder. Why? Because their personalities and their behavior had a volatile nature to them, like thunder. Well, now here, this description is even more striking than that, and it is greater than that, because Jesus uses a similar sort of language, but this language ties him not just to a close relationship with the Father, but to the Old Testament Messiah. He is the Son of God. By declaring himself to be the Son of God, then, Jesus is not just saying that he is acting like the Father or following the Father's example. He is actually saying that he is of the same nature and the same essence as God himself. That he is equal with God. Unless you think I'm reading too much into that, Verse 18 confirms that is exactly what Jesus said, and that is exactly what the religious leaders heard. And Jesus had ample opportunity to walk that back if he had meant to. But this is exactly what he meant. Now look at what he says about God the Father. He says, my Father is working until now. In the context of healing on a Sabbath day, Jesus declares as his defense that God the Father works on the Sabbath day. Now that leads to an important question, one that the Jews had asked, that they had wrestled with before. And the question is this, does God keep the law? Well, what do you think? Does God keep the law? The natural, most obvious answer to that would be yes, he does. He's the giver of the law. The law is a reflection of his character. Of course he keeps the law. But then that leads to a problem. Because if God keeps the law, then does he rest on the Sabbath? Genesis, the, the creation account tells us God rested on the seventh day. But if God completely rested from all of his work, would things not be utterly destroyed? So does God rest on the Sabbath day? And if he does, what does he rest from? And does he contribute, continue sustaining and controlling all things as he rests on the Sabbath day? And of course, the obvious answer to that is yes, he is sustaining and upholding all things. So that leaves the religious leaders a dilemma. How are they going to enforce their stringent, ridiculous rules of the Sabbath day and yet allow for the fact that God doesn't even keep those rules. So here, they're in a hypocritical dilemma, and it exposes the legalism that they had attached to the law of God. And Jesus here, with one simple statement, exposes all of that. He blows their system up, and he confronts it head on, essentially by saying, God is free and God is right to do what he wants, when he wants, in the way that he wants. 
And the fact that he does it makes it right, regardless of what your law says. He makes the point, God never stops working. He never slows down. He never takes a break from any part of his work of sustaining and protecting and blessing and showing grace and mercy and so on. But then, with all of that in mind, Jesus adds to the statement. Jesus turns the heat up yet again. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, fine, you can make the point about God in heaven. We'll leave that one alone. And Jesus says, because I am one with him, I do what he does, I work on the Sabbath, period. That would have been a shocking statement to everyone who heard it. And the, significant of it, the significance of it was not lost on the religious leaders. We'll see that in a moment. Jesus boldly claims to work at the same level and in the same way as God himself. Yes, he is a man. And yes, as a man, he kept the law, uh, uh, including the Sabbath. But as God, he didn't stop working. This is amazing. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is the giver and upholder of life. And he is doing it even in that moment while these religious leaders are talking to him. Can you imagine that? And so in all of this, Jesus makes an unmistakable claim to be the same essence and nature as God the Father. God works on the Sabbath, so do I. We are one, he says. Now, that is an amazing claim. It's an insane claim for him to make from human standards. And it is a claim that is sheer blasphemy if it is not true. Calling God his Father in this way is enough to get the religious leaders worked up because they understood what he was getting at. And verse 18 shows they knew what he meant to say. This is why it says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. You don't kill somebody for a minor offense, but in that culture, you kill somebody for blasphemy. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So now it's not just that he broke the Sabbath in their, in their minds according to their tradition, but even worse, he claims to be of the same nature as God himself. He, in fact, claims to be God. Now these religious leaders already didn't like him. They were already opposing him, but this is the nail in the coffin in their minds. Now they really hate him. Now they really want him dead. Why? Because there was no mistaking the claim that Jesus made about himself. And not only did he make the claim verbally, he backed it up with his actions. He just healed a man on the Sabbath day. And then he digs his heels in with what he affirms in his mouth. I do it because I'm God. He demonstrates it. That he is equal with God the Father in his nature. Well, as if that weren't enough. I mean, that should be enough, right? To know he's one with God in, in his nature. But Jesus continues to pour it on here. He actually goes further. He takes his claim to the next level in verses 19 and 20, 
where we find that he is not only equal with God the Father in his nature, but also in his works. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son... So he doesn't say I, he says the Son, because now he's talking about the big picture. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And with this, he begins an extended discourse that runs through the rest of the chapter that confronts their error and teaches the truth about who he really is. And he begins it with, truly, truly, I say to you. Most of you are familiar with that phrase now. That's Jesus' phrase of authority that he attaches to the front end of what he's about to say. Because as God, he does not need to wait for any man to give affirmation to the truthfulness of what he says. He is the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Now that's the negative part of the claim that he is making here. He'll, he'll say it positively in a moment. But what he is saying here is not, it's not talking about some deficiency on Jesus' part. As if he just goes along with whatever the Father says, whether he agrees with it or not. That's not how this relationship between the Father and the Son works. What he is saying here is an expression of purpose and mission. The unity of their purpose and mission. The unity of the purpose and mission between the Son and the Father. And so the positive statement is this, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, Jesus, as the Son of God, equal with the Father in both nature and works, does not act independently of the Father, but does what the Father does the way He does it. Don't let the title Son trip you up. You might ask the question, well, wait a minute. Isn't the fact that He is the Son and the Father is the Father, isn't that automatically showing us that there's some sort of subordination or lesser level to the Son than there is to the Father? Well, yes, if we're talking in terms that are bound by time and that are finite, like fathers and sons, right? The father has more authority in the home than the son does. But that's not what this is referring to. We, we're talking in eternal terms. We're talking about one who was never made the son, but who has always been the son. And son is, a, is a, an explanation of his likeness to the father. So this isn't a subordination in eternity. Anytime you see a subordination of the Son, think humanity, right? When he made himself nothing. But Jesus here isn't claiming that. He's saying, I am equal with the Father. What he does, I do. What I do, he does. We are one. So the question is often asked, could Jesus have sinned? Have you ever thought about that question? I think this text helps us answer that question. No, he couldn't have. Why? Because God can't sin. And even in his humanity, 
though he was limited in some ways because he, he laid those things aside to come and live on this earth among us, he didn't stop being God. Jesus does nothing except what the Father does. To see Jesus' work is to see the Father at work. Is there any other person who could claim that? Could any of us claim that? I mean, we strive to follow God's example. We strive to live by His words. But can you or I claim that the only thing we do is what God does? No. Can we ever claim that we do nothing of our own purpose but only God's? No. Because we're still sinners. In fact, in our sin, we work at cross-purposes with God all the time. But this is where this gets really good. Because Christ only does the will of the Father. And if we are in Christ, we are reconciled to the Father. And if we are in Christ, we have the perfect Holy Spirit at work in us, which means even though in our sin we may from time to time work at cross-purposes with God, in Christ we are still brought into God's will. Isn't that amazing? And if Jesus isn't one with the Father, none of that's possible. Jesus does what the Father does because they are equal in their nature and their works. And if that is true, that also implies that they are equal in their will and their purpose and their mission. Their activity is the same. It is unified. It is a unified will. It is a unified purpose. It is a unified mission. And now, beginning in verse 20, we see how that is played out. How are they equal in nature? How are they equal in their works? What does it look like? Jesus explains further in verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Again, that doesn't mean that the Son is somehow ignorant of all of this, and the Father says, hey, check this out, you're going to like this. No, they're, they're one. But this highlights their relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. That speaks of the closeness of their relationship together. It is a relationship of perfect love, which means perfect unity, perfect unity in their mission, and all of that drives their works together. And so in this union, the Father shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. That is a, an eternally and perfectly open relationship. There are no secrets. There are no cross-purposes. There are no gaps in their thinking. There is no vagueness among them. There is no breakdown in communication. There, are no, there is no contradicting will. While Jesus suspended the independent use of some of his attributes when he became a man, he still held on to his deity. He was always united with the Father. He was always intimately aware of and involved in the work of the Father. Not just in agreement with what God the Father wanted him to do, but inseparably one with him in all of it. Why is that important to understand? For this purpose. So that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the physical expression of God Himself. 
The Apostle Paul says as much in Colossians 1, verse 19, when he says, In Him, that is, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He wasn't a partner with God. He wasn't, he wasn't the offspring of God as if he had been created at some point in history. No, he is, in him is the fullness of God. And Paul says again in chapter 2, Colossians 2, 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Father and the Son are united. They are unified in their nature, essence, work, and mission. Now the last part of verse 20 continues, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel, so that you may marvel. Apparently there was some cynical thought among the religious leaders that went something like this. Well, we have seen greater works from God before than anything that we have seen from you. <laughs> a funny thing to say to a guy who raises the dead and heals the paralyzed people. Blah. Yeah, no big deal. That's like the, the story of the, the old guy who gets taken to the Atlantic Ocean for the first time, and he's standing on the shore looking out at the vast Atlantic Ocean, and his first response is, hmm, thought it would be bigger. You can't even see the other shore. Well, that's the idea of something that was going on in the minds of these religious leaders. And Jesus counters this thought by telling them that beyond what they had already seen from him, Jesus healing a paralyzed man right here, this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, that there would be greater works that would lead all of them to be amazed. Now, what's he talking about there? What are these greater works? Well, verses 21 and 22 give us a hint of that. That Jesus has the power to give life and exercise authoritative judgment. We'll unpack that in a moment. But what Jesus is talking about here then is not just marveling for the religious leaders who are right then, right there. But this is also something that is coming into the future that likely focuses not just on them, but on all men. There was a bigger picture than simply this one conversation and this one confrontation that he has with them. It is a picture that shows us that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all creation. And he will prove in what he does and what he will do in the future and how he will bring those things to pass that he is doing things that only God can do. No one can claim to do what Jesus is doing. And there is coming a time when it will be clear for all to see. So let me just pause right there and ask this. Do you see what Jesus does and what he says as proof that he is God in heaven? And Lord over all, there is coming a time when every knee will bow to Jesus and will confess him as Lord. Some will confess him as Lord, as redeemed saints. Others will confess him as his condemned enemies. My question is, on which side will you be? Jesus is God. He is one with the Father in His nature, 
and in his works. That brings us to a third description that we see, continuing to pile it on. Jesus is equal with the Father in his power. His nature, his works, and his power. Now, we can talk about power in many different ways, can't we? We could talk about lifting weights. We could talk about hauling cargo. We could talk about lighting houses. We could talk about moving speeches. And we could describe all of them as powerful. But what Jesus is describing here is much greater than any of those. He is talking about ultimate power. Ultimate power. Power over life and death. He is talking about the very ability to give life. So in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is in Athens talking with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, this is what he says of God. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then he goes on and says, in him we live and move and have our being. God, he says, is the giver of life. If you have life, it's because God gave it to you. Now, coming back to the Gospel of John in chapter 1, we read about Jesus. In him was life. In Jesus, in the Son of God, was life. In other words, as Jesus declares here, just as the Father gives life, so also does the Son give life. He is the source of life. He is the giver of life to whomever He chooses. And yes, this includes physical life. Nothing exists, nothing survives apart from Christ. But it's not just physical life, it's also spiritual life. Anyone who comes to spiritual life who would be reconciled to God and have eternal life comes through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You cannot come any other way. And so in John chapter 11, when when he's raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus proclaims this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Indeed, true life is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the way one commentator summarizes this point. He says this, Unlike Elijah and Elisha, Jesus did not merely act as God's representative when he raised the dead, but as God himself. The Son himself gives resurrection and spiritual life to whom he wishes. As God is the source of life, so Jesus Christ is the source of life. He is equal with the Father in his ultimate life-giving power and in his desire and his will and his ability to save his people. That brings us to a fourth consideration. Nature, works, power, and now we see Jesus is equal with the Father in his authority. His authority. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now there are other parts of Scripture Genesis 18, 25 being one example, 
where we find that God is the judge of all the earth. And we might assume that that means God the Father, and I believe it does. But here we read that the Father judges no one. So have we found a contradiction in Scripture? No, we haven't. We have found somewhat of a clarification. This doesn't mean that God never judges anyone. Rather, it indicates that the work of judgment has been delegated to the Son. That's the next phrase. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. The one who died on the cross. The one who came to demonstrate his love to us. And that while we were still sinners to die for us and to reconcile us to God, he is also the judge. He is the resurrected, glorified judge of all things. And there is a future aspect to this, where Jesus is the ultimate judge who will execute final judgment on the earth as we see described in the book of Revelation. But there is more to it than this. Judgment has the idea of authority, or we could say jurisdiction over all things. We've already seen that everything the Father does, the Son does, that Jesus, as the Son, is acting. He is the acting agent in the Father's will. And now we continue to see that as the judge, as the authority, He is the creator, He is the sustainer, and He is the judge of all creation. So Jesus here is claiming ultimate authority over all things. Ultimate, supreme authority. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1 with me, and you'll see how the Apostle Paul describes this. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Here's another text we could have gone to for a message, and maybe one day soon I will. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he once was non-existent and, and came into existence. It means he is exalted as the, the highest over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He created the authorities that exist in this world. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the, of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He created it. He sustains it. He has reconciled it to himself for his own glory. He is the center of all of it. The Lord Jesus Christ is the highest authority in all the universe. All things were made by him. All things belong to him. All things continue and are sustained by him. And all things answer to him. That means every one of us. None of us exists without his creative work. No one lives apart from his sustaining will. No one comes to eternal life except through his saving mercy and grace. He is the ultimate authority over all things. And so our relationship with him is of supreme importance. So when we put all of that together, 
we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Lord of all, the sovereign ruler of all creation, and the sovereign Savior of his people. He is equal with the Father in his nature, his works, his power, and his authority. And now finally we see that Jesus is equal with the Father in his honor. This is the culmination of everything we've covered so far. This is what it is meant to bring us to. This is the purpose of these other truths. Those other four points were intended to lead us to this point that we would honor the Son as God, that we would worship the Lord Jesus Christ as God. So look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Since He is the essence of God Himself, since He is the reason we exist and He is the source of our life and the one to whom we will give an account for our lives, we must bow to Him. We must submit to Him. We must worship Him and we must serve Him. This is the logical conclusion we must come to if all of this is true. It's the reason we exist and we're created. One preacher summarizes it this way. This is the consequence of all the previous claims. So that the only possible right response to the one who created everything and who will bring everything to its consummation and who, by the way, in the middle upholds everything by the word of his power, the only possible response is that he is to be honored in the same way that God is to be honored. So Jesus here claims to be God and he insists on being worshipped as God. The religious leaders had claimed to worship the God of the Old Testament. Jesus now looks at them and says, I am He. So you can see that there is no room for neutrality here, right? How could we possibly think that Jesus was just a good guy, a good religious figure, a great martyr of history? If you think that, you clearly have not been reading the story. You have not been listening to the things that Jesus himself said. These are outrageous claims that he makes. And he makes them in the face of the most highly respected and authoritative religious leaders at that time. And he looks them in the face and he claims to be God and he demands their worship. So, either he is a deranged lunatic, or he is who he says he is. And the reality is there's only one real option. The evidence is clear, and it is sustainable throughout Scripture and throughout history. Jesus is who he says he is. And if you think otherwise, you're just not reading the story. You're just not thinking clearly. Jesus is the visible revelation of the one true God. He is equal with God in his nature and his work and his power and authority and his honor. He is one with the Father in his essence and in his mission and in his will. And as God, he is the only Savior. He is the only way to God. He is our only hope for eternal life. But as God, he is enough. He's all we need. 
And that leads to verse 24, which serves as a natural conclusion to the passage. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, truly, truly, here's that authoritative statement. And those words, hearing and believing, have the idea of not just hearing the words, but taking them to heart. The one who hears the word of God, who hears the truth about Jesus, must believe it and accept it. And believing it means responding to it and acting upon it. Not just acknowledging facts to be true, but orienting your life around it. And so in this case, it means repentance from sin. Recognizing that He is the holy God, and we are unholy sinners. And so we are condemned because He is who He is. But then repenting and believing that in Him there is salvation. Repenting, turning to God in faith, and finding eternal life only in Him. The one who does so, Jesus says, does not come into that judgment, but is passed from death into life. So friends, I come back to the most important question. Where do you stand with Jesus? I'm not asking for a Sunday school answer. Well, Jesus died on the cross for my I get that is important. My question is, what has it done to you? Where do you stand with Him? If you are not embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are currently opposed to Him and under His judgment. Those who embrace Him receive the eternal life He gives. You want life? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is not just a good guy. He is the Son of God and Savior of the world. So He is able to save. And He is willing to save. Won't you come to Jesus, yield your life to Him, and find the salvation that He so graciously offers? Let's pray.